0: Father, as we come to your word today, we ask, Lord, that you would show us once again how desperately lost we are without Christ. Show us, Lord, how great our need for the cross really is in order that we may fully submit ourselves and, and see, Lord, with the eyes of our hearts, see The wrath and the mercy that's displayed at the cross. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that you will bless it and use it to edify your people. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19, we're going to be continuing our study of Genesis today. Uh, last week we covered, what, 24 verses, and today we're just going to cover four. Um, so we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 29 today, Genesis chapter 19. If you got your Bible from out in the foyer, it's page 14. And we've been going through this for almost a year, and we've gotten a whole 14 pages in. Next week we will mark one year uh, since we started this study. You know, the book of Genesis, I said this in week one of our study uh, almost a year ago, that the book of Genesis is filled from, from cover to cover, from, from beginning to end, with stories about God's grace. And we love grace. We love to, to talk about grace. We love to sing about grace. And Genesis has so many stories that are just overflowing with God's grace, But it's ironic that this book that's so filled with God's grace also has some of the most severe stories of God's wrath that echo throughout the rest of the Bible. And it makes a lot of people queasy. Even Christians, it makes makes people queasy and uneasy to, to think about or to talk about God's wrath. But the reality is that there is no way to avoid this theme the theme of of god 's wrath, either in Genesis or in the rest of scripture, without completely overlooking or, or ignoring the theme altogether. this is a prominent theme god 's wrath is a prominent theme throughout scripture, of course, you know Thomas Jefferson is famous for what he did with his Bible. he cut out. Uh, miraculous passages, because he didn't believe that miracles really happened, and so he decided to take his Bible and cut out the miraculous passages, and he said that he was okay with what was remaining, and that's because he didn't believe in miracles, and I fear that a large number, a great percentage of Christians in the church today would like to do the same thing with their Bibles when it comes to the theme, when it comes to the subject of God's wrath and yet one of the slogans of our time is where's the outrage everybody's heard it every time something bad happens you see it all over social media so many people are resistant to yield to or to believe in a God who pours out his wrath on the wicked and yet when we feel that something is wrong we're more than eager to voice our opinions against it we don't hesitate to take our pleas for outrage and justice to social media or or even to the streets. So we do have an idea of right and wrong. We're not totally opposed to wrath. We're only opposed, if we're opposed at all, to God's wrath. And you can't believe that something is wrong. You can't believe that something like wrath is wrong unless you believe that something is right. And God designed it that way because it actually points back to Him. The fact that we have a sense of what's right and wrong actually points us back to God. So today we're going to be continuing our study of, of Lot of, of Genesis chapter 19 as we look at an outpouring of God's wrath. It was His judgment against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a judgment that nobody survived nobody except lot and his daughters that is and the only reason that they survived was because of the grace of god which dragged them out of the city lot had been in the city of sodom he had moved to the outskirts and then he'd moved into the city of sodom because he was living and pursuing the things of this world. He'd been living for wealth. He'd been pursuing prestige and power and position and and influence. And he got all those things by moving to Sodom. He wasn't there to be a missionary. He was there because he wasn't content. Lot wasn't content with his lot in life that God had blessed him with. In Abraham's camp. And so he looked to Sodom. He longed for the influence and the power and the worldly living that was over in Sodom. And he made his way to Sodom. Now the angels who were sent to destroy the city had to drag Lot and his family out of the city. Some people would say it is unethical for God to save someone against their will, and yet nobody would argue that God was unjust in saving Lot, even though he saved Lot against his will. And even after being saved, Lot tried to negotiate. He tried to barter some kind of deal with God, not where he goes to the hills, to the mountains where, where God commanded him to go, but he wanted to go to the city of Zoar because he still wanted to pursue worldly living, just on a smaller scale. Remember, Zoar means small. So he, wanted, he still wanted to pursue worldly living just on a smaller scale. It was a picture of Lot refusing to abandon his pursuit of worldly living. And yet, we can't forget that the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that Lot was a righteous man. I mean, it had to be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because there's no other way that anybody would have guessed that Lot was righteous. The day of Lot's rescue is a solemn day. This entire chapter, this is the most solemn chapter in all of the book of Genesis. It's filled with just one tragedy, one episode of heartbreak after another, and we haven't even seen the end of it yet. As we left off last time, the sun had come up on the land, and as it did, the Lord rained down sulfur and fire from the sky, unleashing His holy and righteous wrath against the city, they had personally seen, these people had, remember, the, the Sodomites had personally seen, they had personally experienced God's power to save, and yet their hearts were hardened against Him. God raised up Abraham to rescue them at one point as they were POWs, prisoners of war, and yet they would not believe. And so, despite their rescue, they would not believe in God who showed them mercy. And, and going all the way back, To Genesis chapter three, the serpent talking to Eve. We've seen that the idea that sin is inconsequential is a lie. That's, that's the lie that this, that the serpent tried to pass off on Eve. That sin is inconsequential. And one of the things that we're going to see in this passage, one of the things that we see in this chapter is that fallen man continues to believe this lie. That sin is inconsequential. So we left off last week at verse 24, which says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And our study today will continue as we look at verses 25 to 29. The point of our passage today is that disobedience to God does have real consequences. And that religion without obedient faith is deadly. Now before we look at this text, it would be good to remember what we read back in Genesis chapter 19, verse 17. As the angels are speaking to Lot, it says, as as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life, do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And of course, this is the angels giving specific instructions to Lot and his wife. Do not look back. Simple instruction, right? Do not look back. And yet, despite how simple that instruction is, today we're going to see the consequences of disobedience toward even the smallest, even the simplest commands. So we start off with verses 25 and 26. We read, And He, the Lord, overthrew those cities, and all the city, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground... But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. When Lot looked toward the city, he saw fertile land, huge fields where he could bring all of his, all of his livestock, all of his herds, and where they could just increase. And this city which had such fertile fields and such a culture of affluence was immediately turned to ashes and dust. There was nothing left. There were no survivors. All of those, all the residents in the valleys around the region, they were all destroyed. All the inhabitants of the city, every last person, young, old, everything in between, they were judged and they were punished for their perpetual rebellion, their perpetual wickedness. On the spot, they were judged. Even the crops... Even the the buildings, everything that was there was destroyed. All as a testimony of God's burning wrath against sin. Lot and and his his family were were saved, but God wasn't done with them yet. We read that Lot's wife was behind him. It's kind of interesting by the way, that throughout Scripture, it, it, it does make references to Lot's wife, but it never gives her a name. We never learn her name. So she's just Lot's wife, or, or, or Mrs. Lot, or whatever. She looks back on the city of Sodom as they're as they're escaping up the hills. She looks back, disobeying the explicit instructions that had been given to her, and she's instantly turned into a pillar of salt. Now some might say, you know, Lot left her behind. He, he, was, he was scooting way ahead of her, but we have to understand that it's not a matter of him not being a good husband, even if he wasn't. It's not that he wasn't waiting for her, but let's be clear about why she was turned to a pillar of salt. It's not because Lot was a bad husband. It's because Lot's wife still had her heart set on the city of Sodom. She looked back in a moment of disobedience, now she could have been right up ahead with, with Lot and still looked back. So the reason that she's turned into a pillar of salt is because of her disobedience, not because, Abr- not because Lot was being negligent as a husband. And so she doesn't share the same, the same fate as Sodom. Not in the same way. She's judged, but not in the same way that Sodom was. The Sodomites weren't turned into pillars of salt. They were turned into piles of ashes. So this is a unique judgment from God upon Lot's wife. And she is a reminder that religiosity without obedient faith is deadly. Religiosity without obedient faith is deadly. See, she didn't just take a glance back. It wasn't just a casual glance back to behold the judgment of God raining down upon her beloved city. No, the word that gets translated looked here means From Strong's uh, Dictionary, it means to look intently at by implication to regard with pleasure, favor, or care. Either way, Lot's wife defied clear instructions from the Lord. Now imagine for a moment a world in which as soon as somebody was disobedient, God would turn that person into a pillar of salt. The moment they sinned, He would turn them into a pillar of salt. Well, that doesn't stretch our imagination very much, does it? Because if that were the case, every single one of us would be turned to a pillar of salt before we can say lickety-split. The world wouldn't exist were it not for God's mercy. God is perfectly just in judging sin whenever He deems it right to judge sin. So God was perfectly just in punishing Lot's wife in this manner. And at one point in His earthly ministry, Jesus gives us a very strange command. It kind of seems like it's out of the blue in a sense. He tells us to remember Lot's wife. There are few events in all of the, the Old Testament that are as, as solemn or as serious as what happened to Lot's wife, and there are few words more solemn that come from the words, the the, the mouth of our Lord and Savior Christ when he says, remember Lot's wife. Consider the entire context of this statement. Consider what he says before. Consider what he says after, so that we may have a deeper understanding of why he says, remember Lot's wife. So we're looking at Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 33. This is where he says it. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he, Jesus, answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. The Apostle Peter not only tells us that Lot was a righteous man, he also tells us that Lot was greatly distressed by the sinful culture he had chosen to become a part of. And there's no question that Lot's wife, Mrs. Lot, saw the distress of her husband. She saw that he was distressed by the sins of the culture. She saw that he had refused to participate in the sinful acts that the culture was accommodating and committing and endorsing. From all we can tell, Lot's wife professed the same religion as Lot. The same religion as her husband. And yet, there is no indication that she ever possessed any true form of righteousness. And therefore, when she looked back on the city of Sodom with with love for the city, with care and compassion for the city in her heart, the Lord instantly took her life, turning her into a pillar of salt. And the Lord Jesus uses her. He, He points to her. He says, remember her. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. In what sense was she trying to preserve her life? She was missing all the stuff. She was missing all the treasure that they had gotten for themselves while they were living in Sodom, and so she lost her life. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus doesn't tell us to remember Abraham. He doesn't tell us to remember Lot. He doesn't tell us to remember uh, Jacob, or or Isaac, or or Moses, or or David, or, or even Solomon. No, the person whose attention he draws us to is Lot's wife. Out of all the characters in the Old Testament who were judged for wickedness, Lot's wife is the one he points to. Now if we understand what Jesus is talking about in context here, we see how serious it is. And we see how, how it applies to our lives. Jesus was talking about His second coming. An event that, we are, that we're still longing for, that we're still praying for, that we should still be preparing for to this very day. So it starts out in verse 20 with the Pharisees poking questions at Him. Asking questions. They, they ask Him when they would see the kingdom of God come. And he indicates, Jesus indicates, there there are no signs, there are no outward signs that you'll where you'll see the kingdom of God coming because it's right in your midst. Life would be taking place just as it always has taken place. People would be doing what they have always done, and he connects this future day of judgment back with the days of Noah and Lot and says, Remember Lot's wife. What signs were there in the days of Noah and Lot? What signs were there that judgment was about to fall upon them? There were none. There were no signs that judgment was coming. People were eating and drinking. People were getting married. They were buying and selling. They were trading. They were doing commerce. They were planting, growing crops, you know, making buildings, just like they always have, just like people always have, just like they always will. But what marked the days of Noah and Lot mark our world today as well. Namely, the fact that nobody was ready. Nobody was prepared for God's judgment to fall upon them. Nobody, that is, except for those whom God extended unmerited grace toward. You know, people love To talk about how meek Jesus was. To talk about how mild Jesus was. They love to sing about how Jesus loves the little children. People love to to think about the, the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. And these are all wonderful things, these are all beautiful things. We remember that so great was His compassion for Jerusalem in her sin that He wept over Jerusalem rather than raining down sulfur on the city in the same way that He did with Sodom and Gomorrah. But we have to remember, That this meek and mild Jesus whom we love so much, this Jesus who's characterized by such great mercy and compassion is the same Jesus who is coming back to judge and to condemn for all of eternity all who persist in their sinful rebellion against Him. This is the same Christ of whom the Apostle John would write in Revelation 1-7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. This is the same Jesus that John would go on to say of His return. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's from Revelation 19, verses 15 and 16. Luke 17.22 tells us that He says this to the disciples. He's telling them to remember Lot's wife. He's not telling the Pharisees. He turns His attention to His disciples in verse 22. Remember Lot's wife. Not to the Pharisees. No, He's speaking to Peter. He's speaking to John. He's speaking to Andrew. He's speaking to the people who follow Him. That's you and me, friends. He's speaking to His people. He's issuing a word of caution to His people. Remember Lot's wife. His people are the ones who receive this warning, this instruction to remember Lot's wife. And it's interesting to see that the Lord instructs us to remember her. He doesn't say, don't be like Lot's wife. Why does He tell us to remember her? Because it's so, so easy to get caught up pursuing and loving and cherishing all the things of the world, just like Lot's wife did. It's so easy to forget how deceitful worldly treasure is. It's so easy to forget that a mere profession of faith is absolutely worthless if you do not also possess faith. Many profess faith. Few possess, according to Matthew chapter 7. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget that Christ is coming back. And that all the things of this world, according to Peter, all the things of this world are going to be burned up in an all-consuming fire. They're all going to be lost. It's so easy to forget that Christ is coming back to judge and strike down the nations. It's so easy to forget that God's wrath will be poured out on those who persist in their sinful rebellion. It's so easy to be deceived into believing that because God hasn't brought an end to sin yet, that He's not going to. Or worse than that, that He's never going to because He's actually okay with sin. We must remember Lot's wife because it's so easy to forget that the things of this world Though they may be beautiful, though they may sparkle, they are not worth pursuing above God. We must remember Lot's wife. Consider how privileged she was. Consider how many privileges Lot's wife had. I'm sure she knew Abraham, who is the model of biblical faith. She was married to a man who was righteous and who was different from the culture, who was distressed by the sins of the culture, she was rescued by these angels from God's wrath over Sodom. For what? All that stuff. What good did any of it do for her? Knowing Abraham, the, 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 the model of biblical faith, being married to a husband who was a righteous man and didn't participate in the sins of the culture, being rescued, none of it did her any good. And consider how privileged we are in our day and age. We don't have to ride horses to a house of worship. We don't have to walk to a house of worship. We can ride in the luxury of our vehicles. We can even turn on the air conditioning if we want. And if you don't like what the pastor preaches... Well, you know, it's not like it's the only church in town. There are scores of others. There are hundreds of other churches within driving distance. I don't know how many churches there are in Linwood right now, but at one point, when we first moved here seven, almost seven years ago, there were more than ten churches within a one-mile radius of this church. It's like a church buffet. If you don't like what one is, you can just get a helping of the other. You can pick and choose. What a privilege to have so many churches. To have a neighborhood that's so saturated with churches. And yet, what good is it doing for our culture? Our culture has incredible privilege. Maybe more churches per square mile than any other country in the history of the world. But to what avail? if our laws are any indication, if the laws being passed are any indication, if the things that the culture by and large are are approving of and loving and endorsing and accommodating, it's all to little or no avail. Religiosity without obedient, yielding faith is deadly. Lot's wife had the opportunity to flee, but she wasted her chance, All the privileges for naught. Will that be you? Because make no mistake about it, if you are not daily fleeing from Sodom, you are living in Sodom. If you are not daily dying to yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ, it's because you are in Sodom. If you find yourself looking back on the world. Torn between loving all the things of this world, loving the, the, the values and the treasure that you have, if you're torn between that and wanting to be rescued from the wrath of God, remember Lot's wife, lest you stand in her shoes. You know, as a pastor, if there's one, if there's one type of person that I get pretty frustrated with, it's people who are li- like Lot's wife. They profess saving faith, but they do not possess saving faith if the fruit of their life is any indication. Outwardly, maybe they live extremely, extremely moral lives. They wouldn't steal, they wouldn't wouldn't lie, they wouldn't cheat. Their very moral lives are, are on display for everyone to see, but inwardly, they are very dangerous people. Jesus called this type of person a whitewashed tomb. Beautiful on the inside, or on the outside. Dead on the inside. And the reason that it's so frustrating for me as a pastor, or just as a Christian, is the reason it's so frustrating to come across this kind of person is simply the fact that they don't even realize how lost... They are, or how how lost they're acting like they are. And when you confront this type of person in their sin, they're able to somehow just completely tune you out. Maybe they'll be convinced that that God is going to forgive them so they can just go ahead and sin. You know, I've I've talked with people like this. You know that this is a sin? Yes, but I believe that God is going to forgive me. Or worse than that, maybe they'll be convinced that what they want to do, or what they've been doing, isn't sin at all. Maybe they're convinced that God is is okay with it. Have you forgotten that judgment will come? Remember Lot's wife. Remember that religion without obedient faith is absolutely worthless. And it is deadly. Do you understand how temporary all the things of this world are? Life is always so short. It doesn't matter if you live to 120. Life is so short. Death always comes too quickly. All the things of this life are so temporary. Let's let's say you had a strand of, of, of rope. Uh, let, let's go down to, to just string. Let's say you had an, an infinite spool of string. You could, you could start at one corner of the room and just wind it around and around and around and around all the way around this room. And you get the idea that this is like miles long. And this life is like this. It's so small. It's so temporary. Lot's wife had to learn that lesson the hard way. Do you? So remember her. Remember Lot's wife. And remember that whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That means that God might let you have the sinful desires that you have. The, sinful, the sin of idolatry might characterize your life. He might let you have the things that you want the most for a while. But if what you want most is not Him, if He is not your greatest treasure, you will lose what you love the most, what you value the most, what you treasure the most. Only Christ will last. Now I can hear the objection to God's judgment on Mrs. Lott here. You might say, hey, I've done worse sins than that looking back on on Sodom, even even looking back and, and loving Sodom isn't a big deal. But it is. It is a big deal. How do we know it's a big deal? Because God judged her on the spot. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter if we think that a certain sin is a big deal or not. It really doesn't. What matters is what God says about it. And if God says that all disobedience is sin, and that all sin earns nothing but wrath, earns death, that the wage of sin is death, then we must understand that even what seems like the smallest and most insignificant sin is a big deal to God. If you guys aren't familiar with J.C. Ryle, I would Strongly recommend becoming familiar with him. He was a 19th century pastor, preacher, and theologian who once said, I I believe there was never a time when warnings against worldliness were so much needed by the church of Christ as they are at the present day. And he said that more than 130 years ago. 130 years ago. Have, have, Have things improved since that time. Is the church less worldly today than they were in the middle of the 1800s? Not at all. In fact, things have only become progressively worse over time. J.C. Ryle, I would, I would encourage you to read his chapter in his book called Holiness, uh, called Remember Lot's Wife. That's the name of the chapter. But I have to repeat what he said. He said there Never was a time when warnings against worldliness were so much needed by the church of Christ as they are at the present day. We must remember Lot's wife. And as you do, remember that the treasure of this world will not last. That the treasure of this world is worthless in comparison to Christ. You can, you can have all the riches in the world, you could have everything in the universe but it will not save you on the day of judgment. Eventually, you will lose it all. And so what we have to remember in light of that truth is that there's only one treasure that's worthy of pursuing above everything else, and that is Christ. Above friends. Above family. Even above your own kids. Even above your spouse even above your parents, even above material possessions, even even above incredible job promotions. Above everything. Christ must be our greatest treasure. Now you may may remember from chapter 18 that Abraham had pleaded with God. He He had prayed to God. An intercessory prayer back in chapter 18 to not let the righteous... Share the same fate as the wicked as God went over, as the Lord went over to to Sodom. And they didn't. They didn't share the same fate. God was true to His word. He rescued the one righteous person in the whole city, Lot. Abraham had probably gone to bed that night. After saying this prayer, after begging God and pleading with God, he had probably gone to bed that night trusting that God had indeed heard his prayer, that he had favor with God, and that Lot would be spared. But then we read this verses 28 and 29, or 27, 27 to 29. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So Abraham went to bed. He wakes up early the next morning. He goes back to the place where he had pleaded with the Lord to spare the whole city if 50, or no, change that, 45, or 40, or 30, or 20, or 10 righteous people could be found. And as he stands, on this very same place where he had pled with the Lord, where he had prayed for Sodom to be spared on behalf of the righteous, he looks down and he sees nothing but a pile of smoldering ashes. The fertile ground and the fields that had been so enticing to Lot where, as a place where he could increase his lot in life and be the captain of his own destiny, it was all leveled. It was all ash. It was all dead the hustle and bustle the noise of city life had been turned to deafening silence the air that once was so fresh and so sweet now smelled of sulfur nothing remained nobody survived all that was left was death and destruction we know that lot was spared We know that. We know that because we've got the Bible. We know that God saved him. And yet there's nothing here to indicate or even remotely hint at the possibility that Abraham knew for a fact that Lot had been spared. And as we continue to study the life of Abraham in the weeks to come, or more likely the months to come, there won't be any more scenes in which there's interaction between Lot and Lot and Abraham for all we know they never had any contact ever again the text does tell us however that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived what a beautiful and what a wonderful foreshadowing of the gospel because this is exactly how the gospel works When God looks down upon us and He sees our sin and He sees our rebellion, when He sees how far we've missed the mark, how far we've even come from just just one commandment, just the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When He sees that all we deserve is wrath, judgment, and condemnation, He remembers. He remembers His Son, Jesus Christ, who stood in the place of everyone who would place saving faith in Him. Who took the judgment, who took the wrath of God that we deserved upon Himself and who imputed His own perfect righteousness unto everyone who will place saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. When He sees our sin, He remembers His Son, Jesus Christ, who rescued and ransomed all whom the Father had given Him, paying the debt of their sin in full. When He sees our sin, when Satan accuses us, He remembers His Son, Jesus Christ, and He receives all who are in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, as His own children. Loving them with the same love that He has for His own Son. Do not turn your eyes to Sodom. Do not turn your eyes to the world. Instead, turn your eyes to Calvary. Turn your eyes to Calvary where the greatest act of divine wrath in all of human history, not to mention the Bible, was carried out. You think Sodom was bad? That was nothing in comparison to what Jesus endured on behalf of each and every person whom the Father gave to the Son. Just as Abraham prayed on behalf of the righteous in Sodom, Christ prayed for his people. He prayed for everyone who had placed saving faith or would place saving faith in him. Is that you? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you in him? Do you belong to him? Are you submitting yourself to him? If that's you, remember that Jesus prayed for you. In John chapter 17, in John chapter 17:11, he prayed for you, "Holy Father, keep them, keep those whom the Father had given him, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one." He prayed for you in verses 14 and 15. I have given them Your Word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that You take them out of the world but that You keep them from the evil one. He prayed for you in chapter 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. He prayed for you in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. If you are in Christ, this is for you. Jesus was praying these things for you. Jesus once warned that those who had experienced the privilege of seeing Christ perform great works would suffer a fate worse than Sodom. Consider the privileges that the cities in Christ's time had that the people in Lot's time didn't. Consider the privileges that we have in our time that Sodom didn't. You have heard the Gospel message. You have heard God's offer of free salvation. You have heard God's offer of complete and total forgiveness. You have privileges that the Sodomites did not. In Matthew eleven twenty four, Jesus cries out against those who had privileges that Sodom didn't, declaring, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Friends, you must turn to Christ while there is time. He alone must be your greatest treasure. The good news, the Gospel is this. If you will forsake all your own efforts to justify yourself, and simply come to Christ, repent and make Him your greatest treasure, receiving Him as your Lord and Savior, then He will be your refuge on that future day when He comes and judges everyone. He will be your refuge. Oh friends, you have to understand, the cross is a place of incredible wrath, but it's also a scene of incredible grace incredible mercy. Do not cling to the world. Flee from worldly treasure and cling to Christ. Cling to the cross. No matter how great your sin may be, God's mercy is greater. So let that be your hope. Worldly treasure will fail you. Empty, faithless religion will fail you, but Christ will never, ever fail you. If your faith today is in Him alone, know that His prayers from John chapter 17 were on your behalf and they will be answered. They are being answered today. You will be rescued from judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And one day, his final prayer there that we looked at, verse 24, that prayer will be answered. You will see his glory. You will be with him in glory. Look to salvation. Look to the cross. Look to Christ. And take your eyes off of the world. Remember Lot's wife. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that it is a scene of both mercy and wrath. We thank you, Lord, that Christ endured the cross on behalf of all who would place saving faith in him, that he took our sin, He took our shame, He took our guilt and He removed it from us as far as east is from the west. He removed it into and and threw it into the deepest ocean that we could possibly imagine. And He gave us in exchange His own righteousness. Lord, in the silence of our hearts, we confess to You that we are desperately, desperately lost without Christ. And so we ask that by the convicting presence and the power and the strength and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, we would pursue Him. We would pursue Christ above and beyond everything else in life. Teach us, Lord, to glorify Him with our lives by pursuing him above all things. It's in his name I pray. This message has been brought to you by org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing.